Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. Here's a prayer from the devotional Knowing Jesus. Heavenly Father, how I praise and thank you for your abundant mercy towards me, in that while I was yet a sinner and at odds with you, you did not give me what I deserve, but showed me mercy and love by redeeming my life and clothing me in righteousness of Christ. May I imitate the merciful way Christ lived by bestowing your mercy and compassion on all those with whom I come in contact. May I live as you would have me live in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, Allison. I'm a big believer in the power of mentoring relationships. Um, I have a lot of people I could list who over the years have been a mentor to me. Some of them didn't know that they were my mentor, uh, but they were mentoring me. I think everybody should actively pursue mentors. Uh, People who are ahead of you in different areas of life. They're ahead of you in your vocation. Uh, They're ahead of you in in parenting or in faith or in marriage or, you know, like navigating single life. Like everybody, I think, uh, should pursue mentors of some kind. And it may psych people out if you go to them and say, will you be my mentor? Uh, Because they're like, well, I don't think I have anything to offer. But everybody has something to offer. To be a mentor to somebody else, you really just need to be a couple of steps ahead of them. And we all know, like many of us, are just making it up as we go. And when you're with somebody who's, who's like you're pursuing them to be your mentor, you just want to ask them as many questions as you possibly can about life, about faith, about vocation, about, about whatever. You listen to their screw-ups, and you try to apply the lessons uh, that you've taken from them uh, to your life. And one of the most important things you can get from a mentor is their sense of values, their values, the internal logic that guides them in, in attempting to making wise decisions uh, for navigating life. And though your life is going to look different than theirs, and maybe even your values may look different from theirs, by getting at the internal logic, the why that undergirds the what of their life, you can appropriate the lessons and the failures from their life to your life and hopefully work toward uh, positive outcomes. The challenge in all of this is most people can't formally list their values. Values are something that developed instinctively and internally over a period of time. And so you have to really listen and pay attention to get at a person's values. And you can capture their values by paying attention to the people and the stories that they celebrate, the other people that they honor, uh, the books that they read. You're going to learn a lot about a person when you pay attention to how they respond to a crisis or to criticism. And when you ask them about the why behind their actions, you learn a lot about that person's values. Henry Cloud said, we're attracted to people's outsides, but what we experience over time is their insides, their inner life. And over time, by asking questions, by paying attention to trying to to glean insights, we get a sense of the values of a person. Wouldn't it be great to sit down with Jesus and have a conversation about his values? In the Gospels, he's always on the move. 
uh, especially in the first three chapters of Matthew, the first four chapters of Matthew, Jesus is constantly going here and there. He's healing. The crowds are following him. It's probably difficult to get a moment alone with Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sits down on the mountain and begins to have a conversation with anybody who wants to hear it. And he's sharing, in essence, his values. He's sharing the big why behind his ministry and the what, the people for whom his ministry is coming to bless. And that's what we have when we read the Beatitudes. Jesus starts his first real lengthy public discourse by saying, I've got a special place in my heart for the spiritually run down. He's got his eye out for the burnt out. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Jesus is paying attention as he goes here and there throughout the world, paying attention to where are the burnt out people that I can bless. Then he goes on to talk about those people who have suffered loss, people who are grieving. He says, I've come to be a comforter to you. He says he has a special place in his heart for the meek, for those people who reserve their strength and are waiting with hope for God to bear his arm. He loves those with spiritual hunger, the people who are yearning to be made right with God and also to see God make everything that's gone wrong in the world right. And today, as we look at the fifth beatitude, which is the heart of the beatitudes, uh, we see the logic and the preeminence of mercy in the heart of Jesus. This is what Allison just read for us. Not that one. Blessed are the merciful, uh, for they will be shown mercy. And this, this uh, beatitude is not only the heart of, of the beatitudes itself, I think it's one of the linchpins of the ministry of Jesus and even of the heart of God. This word for merciful here in Greek is eleemon, and it's a word that associates, it's associated with action. It's not a passive word, it's not just a gentle thing, it's an active word, action. In the Old Testament, it comes from the word hesed, which is translated loving kindness. Those of you with NASB Bibles see the word loving kindness a lot. And you get the sense that it's people in need appealed to God for divine mercy, for God to act in kindness on their behalf. And they did it by appealing to God's character. So a couple examples. One from 1 Kings. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they've committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. We have a person who's in a predicament and they're appealing to God's character for God to act in kindness on their behalf by showing mercy. Uh, I, I got the reference wrong here, but here's another one. In your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There are people who deserved to be put an end to, to be abandoned, and yet God was gracious and merciful and didn't. Uh, you see the word mercy like 28 times in the Psalms where the psalmist prays, Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I think a simple definition is mercy is an undeserved act or posture of kindness, especially toward those who are in need. It's an undeserved act or posture of kindness, especially to those who are in need. Can you think of a time in your life where someone was especially merciful toward you? Where you were just up a creek and you didn't know what you were going to do. And not because they, they owed you anything or not because like you're an especially awesome person. Somebody just bailed you out. They offered you this undeserved act of kindness when you were in need. 
Um, my dad's back there and will remember better than I, but I remember this time when I was a kid, before my little sister Jamie was born, where uh, my older brothers and I were with our mom driving to Iowa to go see her parents. We were, we were in our red Jeep, and we were in the middle of a snowstorm long before cell phones were a thing. And we're you know, somewhere in southern Iowa, and the snow is terrible, and the car breaks down. And so here's mom with these three little boys at the side of the highway in just a blinding blizzard in the middle of winter in Iowa. We don't have a cell phone. What on earth are we going to do? And I'll never forget, I remember this as a child where this, this rusty old truck pulled up and an African-American couple got out and came up to us and said something like, looks like you need a little bit of help. Can we help you? And this guy gets on his hands and knees and takes the chain out from his truck and, and like, ties up to our Jeep and pulls us into town. And we will always remember that moment. I think it was years later, Dad, where we ran into this couple, this same couple, in a restaurant. And I know my parents like, we're going to buy you dinner today. It was an act of undeserved, unmerited kindness to us who were in need. Their kindness made a difference. Mercy, an extension of mercy, can change a person's life. Some of you will be able to tell that in your own story, but do you remember in the story of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, the story of the mercy that the priest extended to Jean Valjean? Uh, the priest puts up this vagrant Jean Valjean and, 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 and lets him stay in the church overnight. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean takes a bunch of this silver and flees, and he's going to go uh, and sell it. And there's this great interaction. The police bring Jean Valjean back, and the priest says, Ah, here you are, the priest exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you, but how, what's this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Monseigneur, the police officer said, so what this man said is true then? We came across him walking like a man who's running away. We stopped him to look into the matter, and he had this silver, and he told you, interposed the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he had passed the night. I see how the matter stands, and you've brought him back here. It is a mistake. In that case, replied the officer, we can let him go? Certainly, replied the bishop. The officer released Jean Valjean, who recoiled, is it true that I am to be released, he said, in an almost inarticulate voice, and as though he were talking in his sleep? Yes, thou art released. Dost thou not understand, said one of the officers. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and with a bewildered air, and then turning to the officers, the priest said, you may retire, men, and they left. Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop drew near to him, and he said in a low voice, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them, and he resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And everybody's going to go watch the movie or read the book this afternoon. It's mercy. 
In response to the mercy of priests, Jean Valjean does what the bishop imposed upon him. He gave the rest of his life to becoming a good man. It was in response to the mercy that he began to care for Fantine, the prostitute, and Cosette, her daughter. Though mercy is a gift based not on the character of the recipient but on the character of the giver, in the Bible, mercy comes with an expectation that a person will pay it forward. You consider the, the logic of the mercy of God and in instructing Israel in how to treat immigrants. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And yet, hear the mercy of God. The Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you, their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, this is mercy, and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt." God said, I showed you mercy when you were in a destitute situation, when you were strangers in a strange land, therefore you must do the same. The same logic and priority of mercy is also in the New Testament. Look at this uh, parable of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants, his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. Does it sound familiar? And I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servants in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Now think about this. Jesus attached this teaching at the end of his teaching on prayer. He said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Mercy is a gift that if you refuse to re-gift, becomes to you a curse. Now, this doesn't suggest that mercy was ever earned. Mercy was always based on God's goodness and not ours. But refusing to re-gift mercy, refusing to pay it back, insults the generosity of God and results in heaping judgment upon ourselves. The, uh, the Apostle John, I think I already have it up here, uh, suggests that there is no such thing as a merciless Christian. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. 
Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. If anybody says they are in the light, but they hate their brother, they hate their neighbor, they hate somebody, they are deceiving themselves and they live in the darkness. Show me someone who acts mercilessly, who actively hates other people, and I will show you someone who does not yet know the love of God and Jesus Christ. What if, in the end, God only shows us as much mercy as we are willing to extend to the person that we hate the most? What if, in the end, God is only willing to show us as much mercy as we would extend to the person that we hate the most? Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful, for the merciful will be shown mercy. From Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, mercy is at the heart of God. Twice in Matthew, Jesus quotes the prophet Hosea who says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And mercy is and always has been out of sync with the way of the world. The way of the world is the way of Lamech and Herod. Do you remember the story of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4? He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. There's an offense at this level, and Lamech escalates it, takes it to the next place. There's Herod, who threatened by the possibility of a rival king, kills all of the little boys, two and older, in Bethlehem because he was worried about Jesus, the Messiah, who would come. This is the way of the world, the way of Lamech, the way of Herod. This is the way of escalation. It takes strength, wisdom, security, confidence, and a generosity of spirit to be merciful. But it only takes fear to be merciless. The bullies and the jerks and the tyrants of this world may think that they're showing their strength in withholding mercy and exacting revenge, but they're only revealing their insecurity and their fearfulness. You know that moment in like dozens of movies where like people are in a standoff? There are three people and they're all pointing guns at each other, and everybody is wondering who's going to be the first one to fire or to lower their weapon. And no one's going to lower their weapon because they don't want to make themselves vulnerable or exposed to harm. That is a metaphor for our world, where we are in this perpetual state of being on the edge of violence and the threat of violence, of withholding mercy, of keeping our fingers on the trigger because we're afraid of what would happen to us if we were the first one to stand down. This reflects a world in which the economy of mercy is in shambles. No one's going to be the first to lower their weapon in an act of de-escalation. And this way of living is clearly not working or establishing peace in our world. They bomb us, we bomb them. You send the really strongly worded email that's going to put them in their place and then they respond by taking it to your higher up and things just keep getting worse and no one is willing to de-escalate. How do we get out of this? How do we get someone to be the first to lower their weapon? It turns out in this world with the economy of mercy in shambles that the person who is most justified in taking aim at us has also been the first to extend mercy. Consider the Psalms. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, that we come from the dust. Though God has cause to judge us and take aim at us, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's the first to lower his weapon. We see this also in Romans. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To change the metaphor here, he took the bullet that was meant for us and justified it in, justified in being for us. This act of de-escalation, of unexpected generosity, of mercy, not only eliminates a threat, but it produces a life-multiplying force that restores the economy of mercy, enables other people to act in kind. It becomes a positive, a positive precedent by which we can justify our own actions because God, who was justified in firing at me, lowered his weapon. I can lower the weapon that I'm pointing at other people because he showed me mercy. I can show mercy to other people. And that extension of unexpected kindness, of mercy, releases this life-multiplying force into the world. It creates this positive energy that enables other people to choose a different path. That's what Hugo gets at in, in Les Miserables with Jean Valjean. Think about when, when Jesus confronts Paul and extends him this mercy. The extension of mercy was a life-multiplying uh, force that changed the course of his life. Some of you will know what it was like when you were far from God, and it was the kindness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus that confronted you and invited you lovingly to choose a different way to live, and so you could forever put down your arms. Mercy is a generative, healing, restorative gift that maximizes potential and minimizes fear. Mercy is a generative, healing, restorative gift that maximizes potential and minimizes fear. I wonder if you are tasked with uh, evaluating the state of the economy of mercy in our world right now, how do you think things are going? Thumbs up, thumbs down. What's the state of the economy of mercy? It's not great. What's the responsibility and the opportunity then for the church, for those who've been the beneficiaries of the mercy of God, living in a world where the economy of mercy is in shambles? The calling of the people of God is to be restorers of the economy of mercy. In a world where people refuse to lower their weapons, where they escalate violence, escalate threats, our invitation is to join Jesus in unleashing this generative, healing, restorative gift that maximizes potential and minimizes fear. The calling of the church is to be restorers of the economy of mercy.
And it always, our invitation to do this is in the times when you don't expect, when you're not looking for it. I think of two key times when we're given this Holy Spirit invitation and open door to be restorers, to act in the interest of mercy. One of those is when you see somebody hurting or in need. I remember I, I had a, a good friend, and we worked together at another church, and one day I was following him home. We were, my family was going to go have dinner with him, and we pulled off the interstate to one of those intersections where you know there's going to be somebody asking for money. My MO in those moments is to try to get just enough distance where they're not going to want to walk up to me, or I'm going to try to get at a place where like a light pole blocks my view. I'll even try to get in the other lane. Talk about the Good Samaritan here, you know. But my friend pulls right up to the dude, and I see this hand come out. And my buddy shakes hands with this guy. They clearly talk every day, and he gives him a couple dollars. Now, we could debate whether that's the wisest thing to do, and people will. My friend erred on the side of mercy, however. Think about the dignity. Think about like the, you know, like you drive by in the morning and you see the dude or the lady at the street corner and you drive by at the afternoon and you think they've been there all day long. How many people ignore them? How many people like give them a talking to? My friend instead extends a hand. Talk about the dignifying force of just acknowledging that somebody is a human being. And he did it in the interest of mercy. In the Old Testament, when people were farming, they were to leave the corners of their land unharvested for the poor and the stranger who could come in and find a food, find some, some respite. It was in the interest of mercy. You're going to come across uh, people in your world who you may not even know very well, but you get the sense that they're in crisis. There's a single mother at checkout, and the kids are going bananas, and she's fumbling, and a card is rejected. What an opportunity to, to, to be a restorer of the economy of mercy and say, hey, this one's on me. Can I help you to the car? Can I help you with the kids? Give a popsicle to the kids, do whatever you think is. To be a restorer of the economy of mercy, to see people in need, to see people in crisis, that is an invitation to be restorers. I think in the church, Jesus even talks about it elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, greet not only those who know, you know, but greet the people that you don't know. People come in with such baggage, and church has so much anxiety wrapped around it. Many of the people who walk in here, they're giving God a second chance after a long time of saying no, or they've been rejected or hurt, and they're walking in one more time just wondering if this church is going to hurt them too. To be a restorer of the economy of mercy by going the second mile and pursuing that person in a friendly and not creepy way. <laughs> sorry, guys. Marty and Cerise, sorry about that. It's an, it's an opportunity, an open door to be a restorer of the economy of mercy. I think the other big one, and this is the one that's more difficult, but I think you get an extra crown in your jewel for this one, is when you avoid an opportunity to pounce. There's someone that you're doing business with. They screwed something up in a way that is going to, like, hurt them in a really bad way, and you don't pounce. You don't exploit it for your own gain. Or if there's a person that said something that was inflammatory and you've got the best response in the world and you just shut your mouth. When there are those opportunities to pounce. I heard a story about this uh, really conservative, uh, he, he leads this conservative parachurch organization and there was this political activist who was like, they were diametrically opposed and, and like should have hated each other's guts. And I heard them in a, at a conference talking together. Well, you know what changed their relationship? 
The political activist got cancer. And you know who the first person was to call and say he was praying for him? It was the parachurch conservative dude. And this, this activist was weeping, talking about the kindness, the unexpected act of kindness by this parachurch organization guy. He said, no one else was going to go up and meet me in the hospital, but he did. An opportunity to pounce, an opportunity like when somebody's in a, a moment of vulnerability, and instead of exploiting them to extend kindness. There are these moments, little opportunities, well, the window's going to close quickly. If you don't do something now, like the opportunity is going to be passed. But an opportunity to be a restorer of the economy of mercy when nobody sees it coming. They didn't ask for it. They couldn't even get themselves to hope for it. And a person of God, a man or a woman of God, showed up with a spirit of generosity and blessed them in the name of Jesus. What does it look like to be a restorer of the economy of mercy in the United States in an election year? On this point, I am strenuously contending for the maturity of the church. What does it look like to be a restorer of the economy of mercy in an election year? As your pastor, I would urge you in the name of Jesus Christ, who was merciful to his political enemies, who was praying for them and blessing them while they crucified him, to abstain from making snide, demeaning, sarcastic remarks in person or online, about people and parties with whom you disagree politically. I would urge you to stay away from news sources that actively strive to inflame your negative feelings about political opponents and to paint them and their beliefs in the least generous light possible. Turn off cable news. Turn off talk radio if it's primarily just elevating your blood pressure. Turn on worship and pray about it instead. And I urge you to actively endeavor to build up, to seek unity, to promote peace in your words and in your silence, in your action and your inaction. And if you cannot, to close your mouth, to take your finger away from pressing post, though you really, really want to, and to take that great big jumble of anxieties and feelings and opinions and concerns you have about the political realities in the United States into the voting booth and into your prayer closet. And otherwise, to practice restraint and actively strive to live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness, remembering that your first citizenship is in the kingdom of God and your first allegiance is to Jesus the King, who intercedes for you while you ignore him, who loved you while you hated him, who provides for you when you don't thank him, and continues to pour himself out while you are being stingy with yourself and with others. There are plenty of others who will cover the job for you of posting inflammatory things online. There are plenty of others who will yell and scream and kick and fight and cuss about politics on your behalf. But what's your calling and what's mine? It's to be restorers of the economy of mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, living, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's perfect and pleasing will is. In view of his mercy, join him in being restorers of the economy of mercy. That is the invitation and the opportunity of church, of the church to imitate him in our sacrificial love for others 
in holding back when we could let it go, in extending mercy when we could exploit and take advantage, where we extend kindness when everyone else in the world would think we would be justified in ripping their heads off. In view of his mercy, we show mercy. This is the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Lamech. It's not the way of Herod. It's not the American ideal, but it is the way of Jesus. He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. I think in response to this sermon, uh, a response is invited by all of us. Mercy is ultimately active. It causes us to do something. What do you need to do in response to the mercy of God? It may be to repent, that you, you have taken God's own mercy towards you for granted and you've lived uh, in, in ingratitude. And you would repent and say, God, I have abused your kindness toward me because I've been, I've been stingy and impatient and unkind toward others. I need to repent. I'm so sorry. Some of you may be, may be capturing a glimpse of the mercy of God for you in Jesus Christ, and the response is just to say, like, I'm yours. Like, I surrender. There may be for you a sense that you need to rectify something that's gone wrong. You've harmed someone, and you need to go to them in penance and own it. It may be that there's a right that you have withheld for whatever reason, and God is inviting you to do something to extend mercy in the name of Jesus. Maybe there's, a good, maybe there's something that you need to stop doing. You need to keep your mouth shut. You need to keep your fingers to yourselves and just back away from social media. You need to walk away from sources that are polluting your mind and turning your heart against other people made in the image of God. How is God inviting you to respond in view of his mercy? And for all of us, in, this, in a couple of moments, we're going to come forward and see this tremendous act of mercy, unrepeatable. The world's never seen anything like it. The mercy of God shown in Jesus Christ and what he did for us in the cross has blown the mind of the world, and it continues to blow our minds. How Jesus allowed himself to be crucified so that we could take up a new life. He allowed himself to be treated as undignified so that we could find our worth in him. He was counted sin so that we could be counted among the righteous. He was forsaken so that we could find a place of belonging. And in response to his action, this life-multiplying force has been extended to the world through the Holy Spirit by placing our faith in Jesus. All of us today get to come forward and take, care, take part in that life. Let's not take it for granted. In view of his mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. If you're serving communion, I'm going to invite you to come, but otherwise, let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask your forgiveness for ways in which we have taken your mercy for granted. Forgive us for insulting your kindness by our unkindness to others. Come, Holy Spirit. Transform us, renew our minds so that we can be people who are like you in showing kindness to those who are unkind to us. We can show patience to those who are impatient with us. We can extend mercy to those who are unrelenting toward us. 
And help us to discover in doing this the, the merit of your words, that you are close to people who live in this way. God gives grace to the humble, but denies the proud. Help us, Lord Jesus, to forgive other people, even that one thing that lady did and that guy did to you. Help us to forgive the person we hate the most with the same generosity of spirit that you've forgiven us. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.